This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. The end for Bill C-11 at the Senate is drawing near. This week, Minister Pablo Rodriguez is scheduled to make a long-awaited appearance, followed by -by clause-by-clause review of the bill. The Senate hearings have been a model for legislative review. Senators have heard from a myriad of witnesses, read countless briefs, and immersed themselves in a hard piece of legislation. Regardless of their views, they know the issues around content regulation in the bill are real. The big remaining questions are whether those hearings result in legislative amendments, and if they do, whether the government will accept them. While the Senate was continuing its hearings last week, I was delighted to travel to Yale University to deliver a talk on the bill and the controversies it has sparked. This week's Law Bites podcast is an audio version of that talk which traces the development of Canadian broadcast policy as applied to the internet and recounts how a relatively uncontroversial bill when first introduced sparked a firestorm that is still raging. It's a great pleasure to have the chance to come and speak and add to your CanCon besides the reference to Drake that we had earlier and give you some, give you some other discussion about it, an issue that's been taking place in Canada over the last number of last couple of years that I've been intimately involved with a lot of appearances before House of Commons and Senate committees and a lot of advocacy uh, on this issue that I think provides some really interesting potential lessons for other countries as they venture into the internet regulation space, particularly where we start seeing the intersections that take place between freedom of expression, cultural regulation, and even algorithms. So this is the story of what's now called Bill C-11 in Canada. Uh, and I'll provide you, sort of walk, through, walk you through how we got there, what some of the issues are and, and where things might be going, and then look forward to the discussion afterward. The, the starting point, I have to say, was, was that this bill was introduced just a little bit over two years to the day. It was in early November of 2020. And I have to say the bill was not viewed as particularly controversial. It was introduced, that was at the time, the Canadian Heritage Minister, Stephen Guibault, He's now our environment minister. He introduced this bill, it was known as Bill C-10, and the idea was that Canada was gonna update its broadcasting regulation laws. Broadcasting Act hadn't been updated in several decades, and the argument, a fairly reasonable one, was that it was time to bring in the new world of broadcast, in a sense, the internet streamers and others into the, into the system. This was viewed by the government as part of a trilogy of legislative initiatives, and we can talk a bit more about those um, if you like. There was all, the vision was there would also be a news regulation bill seeking to provide money to news outlets, as well as uh, what at that time was called an online, online harms bill, government has rebranded it as an online safety bill, but it was still roughly the same thing. And they they started with this because it was viewed as the easiest one. It was not viewed as, as a particularly controversial bill. Along the way, that bill is still not law. It has now changed names. I'll explain why in a moment. It's gone from C10 to C11. The content has slightly changed, but not a lot. And it has become one of the most controversial pieces of legislation that our government has dealt with and it's been in power now for about seven years and it's fair to say this has attracted an enormous amount of attention, huge amount of concern from a large number of players which you wouldn't necessarily think would be the case for a broadcasting bill. So let me take you back though to understand how Canada has, a, has dealt with these issues in the past. If we go back to the late 1990s, 
Canada recognized that, like many countries, that the internet was going to change things when it came to various regulatory issues, including broadcast. And so our broadcast regulator, the Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission, the CRTC, it's similar to the FCC here in the United States, held the first set of hearings around this new thing called the internet and considering, and to, to try to consider whether or not the Broadcasting Act could be applied to this, this new media, to the, to the internet itself. And the CRTC, at, at the time, you know, it's still dial-up days and stuff like that, but they nevertheless did, a, did real outreach and came to the conclusion that the Broadcasting Act could be applied to this new venue, to the internet, but they choose, chose not to. They argued that regulating the internet at that stage would not really advance any of the broadcast policy objectives and so while the statute itself gave, granted them the power to do so, particularly for audio and audiovisual content, not text-based content, but audio and audiovisual-based content, they would choose not to regulate. They would take a hands-off approach. And that, at the time, was, I think, viewed widely as sort of as the right thing to do. It did cause some amount of controversy, though. So, for example, we got this service here in Canada, which was known as iCrave TV with a very old Netscape screenshot. Um, and so iCrave TV, right after the CRTC releases its decision that basically says we will exempt these so-called new media services, launches. And what it does is it takes over-the-air television signals, predominantly U.S. television signals. If you live in Toronto, Buffalo television signals are very easy to access. It would capture those signals and retransmit them out on the Internet which the idea of video on the internet today, of course, is not particularly controversial. At that time, this was seen as a huge issue. The broadcasters were like, what do you mean you are going to rebroadcast our signals out on the internet? I should say that this was, it was pretty crappy. It was people largely with dial-up at the time. The size of the kind of television there was roughly the size of the video. Uh, so it wasn't very good, uh, but nevertheless it was there and they, they were a little bit ahead of their time. They, they put ads running along the bottom. They saw the ability to try to do that and they were retransmitting it simultaneously. So they, they weren't changing anything. They were saying basically we are cable for the internet and we're making it available online. U.S. broadcasters didn't like it so much and it got shut down the weekend before the Super Bowl because it seemed like there was a willingness to tolerate certain things if it was Regis and Kathy Lee being retransmitted, perhaps that was okay. That was a program that they that used to run in during the day. But if it was the Super Bowl being retransmitted on the internet, well, that would be unacceptable. And so the a U.S. judge asserted jurisdiction, and there's some interesting questions as to that ability to assert jurisdiction over what was a Canadian-based service. But nevertheless, they did. They shut it down. Canada largely tried to cave a little bit to try to sort of and what they described as a loophole in our Copyright Act and in our system to stop this from happening. So it, but it did have some impact. About a decade later, the CRTC revisits the issue. By then, we are starting to see that, yeah, this internet thing might actually mean something, and we start to see more and more audio and video. And so, so various different groups say, hey, we think you should at least revisit, and we'd like you to start regulating. But even in 2012, they say no. It's still a world of largely hands-off approach. Over the years that follow, that kind of hands-off approach follows in a number of different ways. We had, at the time had a conservative government that wanted to take a very much a hands-off approach to regulation. This is our former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, who during an election campaign ran in part on no Netflix taxes. 
and produced, for example, a pretty cheesy video talking about how Breaking Bad was his favorite TV show and nobody should be taxing his ability to watch Breaking Bad. Couldn't even chose chosen a Canadian program. But <laughs> in, in any event, government was very much sort of hands-off at the time, and so was the regulator. So they launched, for example, a consultation called Let's Talk TV, where their view of the internet was that these services were positive from a competition perspective, and that if anything, this would have the effect of, in, of sort of forcing Canadian services to up their game, create more in part because there was going to be more competition in the marketplace. And even once the Liberals were elected in 2015, we got a heritage minister named Melanie Jolie. She took this issue on as being a priority issue. And her instinct at first was largely to take still a hands-off approach. She went down to Silicon Valley and negotiated a deal with Netflix where they committed to spend at least $500 million on production in Canada over five years. And that was viewed as a win for the country. I think they, they would have spent easily that much anyway, but nevertheless, it was touted as a win. But there was a backlash, and it was that backlash of saying, really, we're going to take, take no role at all here at a time when we started to see more and more technology company backlash that suddenly forced the, it's got the government to start rethinking this a little bit. So the CRTC, for example, conducts another consultation. This time they produce a report called Harnessing Change. The very notion that they use that word harnessing, they've now used harnessing in a number of different contexts where the regulator will harness or, great, or exert greater control over what takes place online. It leads to a, another study. We like to launch these studies in Canada and on the Broadcasting and Telecommunications Legislative Review Panel, which creates a series of recommendations around regulating both telecom and broadcast. And it, the government uses that report as the foundation for this bill here, Bill C-10. Now, Bill C-10, as I mentioned, is now Bill C-11. It becomes controversial for reasons that I'll describe in a moment. It dies. We had an election just over a year ago. It hadn't made it through the parliamentary process. Any bills that aren't completed but at the time of the election uh, simply die. And the government then reintroduces it in February of this year as Bill C-11. Okay. Well, what's in the bill and why did any of this become controversial to begin with? As I mentioned, really the starting point was to say what they wanted to do was to expand the scope of the Broadcasting Act, in this case to include what are described in the bill as online undertakings. And these would be online services. They would sit alongside the two other undertakings that exist within the Act, by and large, which would be broadcasters, broadcast undertakings, and broadcast distribution undertakings, BDUs. Those would be cable companies and satellite companies, so basically the intermediaries that are retransmitting. They are regulated right now and subject to a whole series of different conditions. Notably, for example, they may be subject to conditions of contributing to various funds that help support the creation of Canadian content. Don't know if Drake was a big beneficiary of that, but many other artists have been uh, along the way, so they've been required to make those contributions. They may also be required to air, if you are a television broadcaster, air a certain amount of Canadian content during the day. They, they pay for that in a sense. There's a cost, but there are some real benefits as well. It, it may sound odd to people from outside Canada, but it's actually U.S. programming that pays a lot of the bills in this Canadian system uh, through a system known as SimSub or simultaneous substitution. And the idea behind SimSub is that U.S. channels are easily accessible to the vast majority of the Canadian population, o earlier through over-the-air signals, now through cable 
and satellite. And so if you want to watch the latest episode of Grey's Anatomy, you can do so uh, on the U.S. broadcaster. You can also do so on a Canadian broadcaster who has licensed that content exclusively in Canada. But of course, if it airs on both of those channels, it's not so exclusive because you can just flip to whichever you want and watch whatever commercials you happen to want. And so what Canada established a number of years ago was a policy that allows the cable cable companies on behalf of the broadcasters to substitute the U.S. feed for the Canadian feed, even on the U.S. channels, so long as these are airing at the same time. So in other words, when Grey's Anatomy airs in Canada, so long as the Canadian broadcaster airs it at the same time as the U.S. broadcaster, the only feed you are able to get is the Canadian feed, which means the only commercials you are able to see are the Canadian commercials. The audience is much bigger. This generates for Canadian broadcasters hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And it is on that basis they say, hey, you are profiting a lot from the system. Pay back into the system uh, and help contribute so that there is Canadian content to view. It also means that Canadian broadcasters largely surrender much of their programming schedule to U.S. broadcasters. If ABC, I think it is, decides to switch when Grey's Anatomy airs, the Canadian equivalent CTV will switch when Grey's Anatomy airs. And if there happens to be something else there, let's say a Canadian show, that Canadian show is going to move, which isn't great for people discovering that content, but nevertheless, that's, that's a function of how the system works. So the goal was their contributions are coming from some of these large conventional broadcasters. Can we bring in the Canadian, can we bring these other large streaming services into the Canadian system? So the Disney, Disney Pluses, Netflixes, Amazons of the world. Now, Melanie Jolie's $500 million, as it turns out, was chump change compared to how much Netflix has actually invested in Canada in the last five years. They recently told one of the parliamentary committees that they've spent more than $3.5 billion in Canada on licensing and the creation of various kinds of content. That makes Canada one of the top three places that they spend on production worldwide. Now, some of that is their own original stuff that see taking place globally. Some of it is originally Canadian produced stuff that they will then license and then air. We were talking over breakfast about Schitt's Creek, which is a Canadian program which was popular in Canada but wasn't winning every single Emmy Award the way Schitt's Creek did at the very end and was made popular globally on the basis of Netflix. I mean it was Netflix that kind of brought that global audience. And so the system says we're going to bring these players, the legislation says we're going to bring these players into the system and we are going to establish new mandatory rules of contribution. It's nice that you're spending all this money. We'd like to require you to spend the money and we would like, in theory, that some of that money not be determined how it gets spent by you but rather contributed into funds uh, that then get allocated in different ways. Now notably, the legislation excluded user-generated content, or UGC. So the stuff that might get posted on TikTok or YouTube, that sort of content, for which people spend a lot of time on nowadays, uh, was excluded. This was about, it doesn't say so in the legislation the way it does in Europe, but this was largely about curated services, um, or at least that was the vision. And they included, as you'll see in a moment, a couple of exceptions to deal with that. I should note that this is the legislation is pretty ambitious in scope. There are no thresholds, so it applies to any streaming service anywhere, no matter how small it happens to be. We talk about the big ones, but it could be a small streaming service from any country around the world that might happen to have a small number of Canadian subscribers. The expectation is the regulator will establish thresholds, but there are none contained within the legislation. And it also applies really to anything that's audiovisual content. 
It applies to programs, and programs are defined as audiovisual audio or audiovisual content. And so it is anything that's audio or audiovisual wherever located in the world. Very, very broad for uh, usually modest Canadians to say that we're going to regulate everything and everywhere, but there was at least some expectation that there might be some limits attached, attached to it. And so the, the claims that are associated with this, I think we could question a little bit. They say that, for example, this was all about targeting web giants, but you could see that, in fact, even as described initially, it wasn't exclusively uh, targeting web giants. It was, in fact, targeting just about anyone, and it was then left to the regulator, perhaps, to limit that scope. It also talked about leveling the playing field, but in fairness, Netflix doesn't benefit from simultaneous substitution or Disney or anything like that. They aren't part of that. They, aren't, they don't get any of the benefits of that system, but they uh, also don't pay into the system in the same way. The conditions, as I say, can include supporting mandate, mandated payments. That would be some of the expectation. There'd also be expectation of mandated data disclosures so that the regulator would know much more about what is happening with respect to these services. Netflix, for example, I think it was in 2014, appeared before the regulator who asked for information about what was happening on their service, and Netflix's response was, no, uh, we don't provide that confidential information, and you don't have jurisdiction over me to be able to do that. That didn't sit well with the regulator, and so we now have legislation that would compel them into some of those disclosures. And we also have what has become the probably most controversial piece based on a change that was made, and that is discoverability requirements. Now, what is discoverability? The idea is that in a world awash with an enormous amount of content, and it's just obviously not nearly enough time, hours in the day to see everything, or hear everything, Canadian content might get lost. Now, Schitt's Creek wasn't lost, Drake doesn't get lost, but there's lots of other content that might. And so the idea is, forcing these services to better promote or find ways to influence what people see as recommendations so that they start seeing some of this Canadian content. It's not totally clear how they would have to do that. There's, the legislation doesn't even define discoverability, to be honest, but there's an expectation in some cases it might be banner ads or it might be, and this is where things get controversial, it might be tweak your algorithm to ensure that part of what gets displayed within my Netflix feed or within my TikTok is Canadian content. Now, why does this become in any way controversial? Because it sounds, perhaps it sounds, hopefully it sounds interesting, but shouldn't, I don't think at this stage, sound particularly controversial. It becomes controversial because along the way, the government makes a change to its own legislation. So I mentioned that first Bill C-10 is introduced in November of 2020. I must admit, I, was, I wasn't a big fan. I started doing a lot of writing and advocacy, appeared before the committee to point to what I thought were some of the shortcomings in the legislation, and I got absolutely nowhere. And for the most, for the others that were engaged in this as well, didn't really get anywhere. The bill kind of sailed through with limited hearings and moved to what in our legislative process is known as clause-by-clause -clause review. So the way things work is that it, it, a bill will start in Parliament, well, in the House of Commons, it will be referred to a committee of the House, which will conduct hearings with witnesses. Once they've completed that, they go through a process which is called clause by clause, where they read through each clause in the bill. There's the prospect of proposing amendments. Those amendments can be debated. They can be voted on. There may be some changes made to the bill. And eventually, the committee will vote out the uh, bill potentially as amended. And then it gets voted on by the full House and then ultimately goes to the Senate. It was going through that process again with limited attention and out of the blue, the government makes a change to how it's going to treat users. The bill had, had established or had included two exceptions. 
both related to users. The first, section 2.1, said they weren't going to treat users as broadcasters, in effect. So the idea was, we recognize big, big broadcasters have resources, they show up to regulatory hearings, they can participate in this. We will not treat an individual who posts something to YouTube or TikTok as the same as a broadcaster. That was section 2.1 as an exception, and that exception remains. And so it is still the case that users are not, will not be treated as akin to broadcasters. The other element, though, that was included was section 4.1 in this bill, in which it said that user-generated content, user content, would not be treated as a program. So I mentioned program is all this audiovisual, audio and audiovisual content, podcasts, other videos, and the, the provision said that isn't a program either. Well, the government all of a sudden decides to remove that section 4.1. So suddenly the scope of regulation is all content. It is not limited uh, just to, this, let's say, that commercial kind of content. The concern, as we understand it, was YouTube, which has lots of different content, including a lot of music. And some music lobby groups were concerned that YouTube would not be swept up in this because of that. And they wanted their fair share of revenues from YouTube too, or what they see as their fair share of revenues from YouTube too. And so they said, we're going to include this content here. That had the effect of really blowing up the legislation because all of a sudden people recognized that legislation that looked like a sector industry oriented bill suddenly now would directly affect many individuals in ways that weren't previously contemplated. In fact, it's fair to say that even the platforms themselves were not particularly engaged until this moment. Netflix, was Netflix, which still was subject to it, never saw this, I think, as particularly onerous or at least they didn't get very, very active on it. But platforms like YouTube, uh, like Google, YouTube, or TikTok, and others really didn't, didn't participate at all because they looked at the bill and said just it didn't have all that much relevance for what they were going to do. Suddenly that changed. And so the bill becomes very controversial. The hearings themselves become controversial. There was a moment in time, in fact, where the committee realized what has taken place and said we have to almost redo some of the hearings. So as it happened, I get called back, someone else gets called back, and we have to sort of re-debate some of these issues. At the end of the day, the government is able to get the bill passed in the House, but it doesn't go any further. It goes to the Senate for a day or two. We get an election call, and that's it. New government, or same government, but new mandate. And in, as I mentioned, in February of this year, the bill comes back with just slightly a new number, now Bill C-11. The government says they fixed the problem. And so they put Section 4.1, that exception goes back into the legislation, and they say, hey, we heard the problem, we fixed it. The problem is that they also added a new exception to the exception. And so the exception to the exception, creating a bit of a legislative pretzel, was one that did give or does give the CRTC the power to establish regulations over certain kinds of programs. Now they have excluded, it's fair to say, all non-commercial content. But they have said that regulations can apply can establish regulations and the things they can consider are things like direct or indirect revenues and the like. Which, for example, TikTok says means that their read of this is that any video on TikTok with music does fall within this legislation. And so we are still talking about a vast amount of content that affects a great many people. What has happened since the bill's introduction is the government simply steadfastly denies that there's an issue. And so, uh, in what I think is just a classic case of gaslighting, the minister, whenever asked about this issue, just says, no, there's no problem, it's not included. And I, have to, I must admit to some amount of frustration in trying to have at least an honest policy debate about what is there, and it's hard to respond when the government just says, 
uh, we're going to try to pull a Jedi, Jedi mind trick and saying there, you know, there is no regulation here. You can just believe, you just believe us. But creators and the platforms themselves have spoken out. It's been an interesting case for that community, for the digital creator community in particular, to come together. It is somewhat reminiscent of what we saw years ago around some of the copyright-related issues where communities found one another and began to speak out. In this case, you see communities of TikTokers and YouTubers, many of whom have massive audiences, frankly, in some instances, far larger than conventional broadcasters, who are generating significant revenue, whether it's through a Twitch stream or it's on TikTok or a YouTube or on, on a range of different things, who look at this legislation and are deeply concerned that it will have an impact on their ability to generate revenues and continue to engage in their kind of creativity. YouTube, as I mentioned TikTok, talking about all videos being caught. YouTube, someone was telling me the other day that when they're on YouTube, they can barely escape the YouTube ads that exist specifically around this issue with warnings about implications for people's feeds and implications for creators themselves. House of Commons heard all of this, but still passes the legislation as is. In fact, the government was so anxious to pass this that they put a stop to the clause-by-clause -clause debate. They gave it one day. They said any potential amendments that haven't been passed by 9 o'clock this evening will simply be voted on uh, without being even read. And so the committee proceeds to go through about 100 different amendments, which are not even read, are not made public to anyone at the time. They are just required to vote up or down. The MPs who are there have a chance to see them. The, the public does not. I actually did a post this morning that talked about the Senate's review of this bill, which I have to say is a case study for good legislative review. They've heard from all of these kinds of creators. They've heard from many, many groups, and they heard last night for the second time from the chair of the CRTC in what I thought was a pretty embarrassing appearance because he has tried largely, I think, to represent what the government would like, this, would like to be said about the bill as opposed to what's actually there. That process is going to wrap up, though. The minister is going to appear on Tuesday, they announced this morning, and their clause by clause will take place in a week next Wednesday. So that's what's taken place at the Senate. Let me sort of bring this all together by talking about some of the kinds of issues that come out of this particular experience and then a word or two about how it fits within the, the rest of that mandate. First, there is, a, I think, a fundamental question for countries thinking about regulating this as to how you do treat user content. Now, my own view would be that this is expression and that in the same way that I am a fan of using blogs or other kinds of different media for speaking out, there's a generation that turns to many of these tools as their way of communicating, as their way of creating, as their way of finding community. And the notion that we, brought, that we might regulate it as broadcast in the same way that we do conventional broadcast strikes me as anathema to the approach that we ought to be taking with respect to this form of expression. In other words, broadcast regulation really ought to be the exception to the rule rather than the rule. There are instances where broadcast regulation may well be appropriate, but I'm, I don't believe this is one of them. And I would, would note as well that in, in this context, you know, there is no one else that is seeking to do this. So um, we at least get to say that we are the only ones that see fit, at least at this stage, to treat this kind of content as regulated in this manner. That's not to say that this content doesn't get regulated at all. Defamation, hate speech, other sorts of speech rules still apply, and Canada certainly has any number of those. It's more a question of, is this treated as broadcast in this way? There's also the question of how do you even, in a world, if you reach the conclusion that no, 
At a minimum, some of this content is professional and commercial and thus competitive and more like conventional broadcast content, and so regulation may be appropriate. There is still a question of how you go about doing some of that. It's exceptionally difficult to distinguish between that, between podcasts that is commercial or not, TikTokers and YouTubers. It's very difficult to, to see where that changes. And there are big implications. For example, the discoverability, just to highlight that. Uh, that particular issue. The idea that we might charge platforms with either elevating or deprioritizing certain kinds of content based on those government priorities, saying that from a cultural perspective, we want to get into people's feeds and not do it by directly, but do it indirectly by charging the platforms to to, to, move, to change those feeds to get the outcomes that we're looking for from a policy perspective, I think raise some, some serious concerns. I note as well that in many respects, the government insists that it's not regulating, but what it really is doing is saying that we want to regulate, but we want to do it indirectly. We want the platforms to do the regulation for us, and should, we be, should they be in a position to regulate indirectly what they can't do directly or say they don't want to do directly? This has also sparked, and this would be true for any country that brings in sort of domestic content rules, enormous challenges and questions around regulating traditional kinds of content. You know, what counts as Canadian? We have rules for what counts as Canadian for conventional broadcast and conventional uh, music. There's a point system or a checklist that gets used. It's not a particularly good system. I think it's pretty outdated, but nevertheless, we have stuff that counts as Canadian. But what happens when you get into individual creators? If you are going to say that you want to prioritize that kind of content, how do you determine what's Canadian? It's also, I think, exposed problems with our, our actually existing system, which says it's about Canadian content, but the policy objectives are often difficult to identify. Is it about economic policy, trying to ensure more people are working in the area? Is it about so-called telling Canadian stories or telling your domestic stories? In other words, finding ways to enhance your culture? Or is it about intellectual property? Is it about who owns this? So in, Canadian, in a Canadian context, Netflix has funded certain programs that clearly meet the standard of what would be Canadian in the sense that it's a Canadian story with Canadian actors filmed in Canada, Canadian crew, yet doesn't qualify because Netflix owns it. On the other hand, there's a documentary I found called Gotta Love Trump, which has clips of Roger Stone and, and a bunch of other things. It is considered Canadian content because it ticked the right boxes. And so re-examining that system both for the, leg for the legacy space but also for digital creators I think is absolutely essential. And finally, there is this notion of discoverability and algorithmic regulation. The reason that it has sparked so much concern and interest from digital creators is that they make the argument that they lose no matter what. If they are included in this system, to adjust your algorithms in order to try to accommodate them and elevate them, you then have to answer the question, well, how do you even qualify in the first place? TikTok and the CRTC has said, well, this might require you to register with us. It's a 30-page form. Are you going to, every time you want to register your TikTok video, fill out a 30-page form in order to ensure that it gets prioritized in this manner? And if you don't get prioritized, that, does that mean you are effectively deprioritized in your own country because there is other content, Canadian content, that receives that priority? But even worse, if you are included in this system, and so suddenly your videos start popping up in people's feeds, even though there isn't much really interest in it other than the fact that it happens to be Canadian, 
What happens when the large platforms, as part of how their algorithms work, look at that and say, when we show that content to people, they tend not to watch it or click on it, or if they do click on it, they tend not to watch to completion because it turns out it's not all that interesting to them. The algorithm looks at that and says, this is not very good content. When it's been presented to people, they don't click on it and they don't watch it. And the effect for a global platform with 2 billion users is that that content gets deprioritized on a global level. And suddenly you find that 95 or 99, in some cases, 99% of your views and your revenue are suddenly diminishing because your content is being downgraded to the mass part of your audience. That's why they have spoken out so, uh, so loudly on this. I think I'm right at the top of the hour, so I will basically stop there, but other than just to say that with C11, as I mentioned, next week is clause by clause, but there will still after that, I suspect, be various hearings um, at the CRTC to flesh out the rules. They've said if it does pass, it will take at least a couple of years to do so and potentially legal challenges. But beyond that, there are other pieces of legislation and we can get into that if you like. There is C18, which is an online news bill that is modeled after the Australian bill designed to force Facebook and Google predominantly to pay for links to news. The sector has big ambitions in this regard. They expect Facebook to pay $100 million a year for linking to Canadian news. They expect Google to pay $200 million a year for linking and including links to Canadian news services in their news index. Facebook has already said if this passes as is, they may be forced to stop news sharing. They paid $100 million for actual content collectively from Dow Jones, CNN, uh, and the New York Times. I think we've got some great Canadian content, but I don't see any platform in the current environment saying that they're willing to pay the same amount just to link to openly available content, much of it posted themselves by the news media organizations themselves. And then there is this online harms bill that if you like, we can get into. The government has yet to introduce it in part because they faced a bit of a backlash, but it is going to come soon. And so C11 has been a really interesting experience, but I think what it does is really highlight some of the challenges where we see that intersection between longstanding cultural priorities, uh, desire to ensure that we safeguard freedom of expression, and at the same time do that in a world where internet platforms are, of course, enormously powerful, as are, of course, the algorithms that they, that they use and for which sometimes regulators may envision the prospect of themselves playing a role in how they actually function. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.